the Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook, talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. Welcome to the Instructor Podcast. This is a show where I speak to leaders, experts, innovators and game changers to look at ways that we can help you improve your driving school and potentially become an even more awesome driving instructor. And as always, I am your splendid host, Terry Cook. I am delighted to be here, but even more delighted that you have chosen to listen because today I've got another one of those special shows for you. Because recently, back in October, there was the Intelligent Instructor and ADI NJC Expo, and I was delighted to be asked to record the podcast live again. So we have not one, but two live recordings from that event for you. First up, we'll have myself and Sophie Thompson, and that'll be followed by Phil and Diane, who were kind enough to offer their recording to put out for you on here as well but before that we have got a lovely little interview with richard stars who's the man behind intelligent instructor he is going to be telling us about how they are completely revamping what they are doing next year with the conference and answering my question about why he thinks the dvsa should headline when i don't necessarily think they do but before we get stuck into that i want to take a moment just to ask you to give this show some love Go and share it with some of your driving instructor colleagues, whether that's in your local associations, whether that's in your WhatsApp groups, whether it's sharing it with an individual, or even better, sharing it on social media. I would genuinely appreciate if you could do that, and also go and click subscribe as well. That'd be great too. But for now, let's get stuck into the show. So we are now joined by Richard Stars from Intelligent Instructor. How are we doing, Richard? I'm very good, Terry. How are you? All the better for seeing your smiley face. Um, <laughs> yep. So thank you for joining me today. Uh, I wanted to get you on to talk a little bit about the expo that's just been and a little bit about what's coming up because, you know me, I love them. Now, uh, I did miss a little bit of the uh, the last one due to illness, but I was still there. I still saw what was going on. So first of all, I just want to say congratulations because I know you did record numbers. Was it 950 you had through the gate? Yeah, I think we counted 961 on the day, and we know a few people slipped through the radar without being scanned as, as they came through the door as we tried to get as many people through. Um, as we moving the queue through a little bit quicker than um, than we when we thought. So um, yeah, it was it was a busy busy day. I think the record we set previously was 775 at last year's event. And yeah, we had 23% more this time around. So yeah, we were very surprised, but pleasantly surprised how popular it was. But um, the sun was shining, I think that probably helped. Um, and it was a new location this year as well. So we moved to a bigger location at Newark Showground um, in Nottinghamshire, which I think that might have attracted a few new faces to that just off the A1. So you know, easy to get to the location. I think I'd agree. Is there anything that stands out for you for the day? Um, because as I say, it said at the start, I was quite ill and I had to go for a two hour nap in my car. But uh, I felt to me, it felt like there was some, um, a little bit of new energy about it. It felt like there were some new speakers that I'd not seen before. Um, it felt like being a different place. It felt like a different vibe and some, you know, a few different exhibitors. So was, what, what are your overall thoughts on the event? Yeah, it was. It, we wanted to freshen things up. We'd been at Meriden um, for three three years. Well, we had a, we we twenty nineteen. We didn't run one in twenty twenty because of COVID, and then we were back there at twenty one and twenty two. 
but we just felt we'd outgrown that venue and, and the, the event had continued to grow year after year after year. So we did want to look at a different venue that was more pleasurable for the delegates in terms of moving around the venue, a bit easier to navigate around as well. So this was all on one floor. The seminar rooms were, were just off the main expo area. Um, and there's a large space outside where we could do um, outdoor activities. So we spent quite a bit of time and effort working with partners to um, bring that to life. So we're very grateful to our headline sponsor, Actidote, um, and they brought HGV on the day, um, which often you don't see at a driving instructor event. And they did some uh, reversing challenges with instructors. So I think they were busy all day with the queues. I think Simon Axton's going to bring three HGV lorries to the, the event next year, just because um wants to get everyone who wanted to have a go at doing that um, the opportunity to, to do so. Um, so, yeah, the sun was shining on the day, so we're very grateful for, for that as well. Obviously, we can't control that. But, yeah, we just wanted it to be a bit of a fun experience. We understand that driving instructors are busy. Uh, they're taking the day out um, to come and visit us on the day, and they came from all different parts of the country. Um, I think we had – we do a delegate survey at the end of the day, and – um, send it out and people fill it in. And I think there was 12% who travelled over 200 miles to come to the event and 23% had travelled over 150 miles to come to the event. So we know that, you know, that they come from a, a long way away. So we just wanted them to learn from fresh speakers. You're right, Terry, we've got a few fresh faces and, you know, we're always looking for people who think they can cover a relevant subject on the day to come forward. You know, it's not a closed shop. We want to keep things fresh. Um and, you know, the, the variety of different subjects were covered on the day in three different areas. Um, like I say, we did have that outdoor activity area, so a bit of fun. You could do a 20-mile-an-hour braking challenge to show case emergency braking, which driver assist me, the guys they put on that demo, which was very good. Um, very grateful to Ruidi Price, who, who um, set up the EV display. I think we had over 20 EVs on display there. And and John at uh, 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 Drive Disability, um, he came and brought some adapted vehicles and were able to get those tests and driven on the day by instructors who wanted to, you know, see what it was like driving those cars. So, yeah, we just want to keep it fresh and we don't be stale. We want to raise the bar and, and, and continue to do so. Actually, that's a really good point because it's something that I don't think has, uh, obviously you've been on the podcast before and, and Richard Borges, I don't think we've said this before that if, someone was listening and they're thinking I could go and present at one of those events, they can reach out to you and, and you know, put that as a proposal, can they? 100%, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we think it's relevant and it's a, a subject that our instructors on the day would find interesting and and, and different, um, obviously, yeah, we're keen to get fresh people, fresh faces who are competent at speaking and covering relevant different subjects on the day. Obviously, we'll have the call level of speakers some familiar faces there you know i mean barry who's brilliant from the AJC and, and ray seagrave to name just a couple we'd always get some representatives representatives um from the dvsa to give an industry update you know we had Love day riders chief exec who was there um and and we had a couple of other dvsa um people talking um this year covering mock tests and and the ready to pass campaign so yeah, we haven't had that level of involvement from DVSA before. We're grateful for them coming and 
you know that, that that's good that they want to get their head above the parapet and, and come to the event and um you know take questions from the floor which they did so on the day so yeah and if, if someone's out there listening to this podcast and they think they've got something a nice presentation we're keeping it sharp and sharp at the national conference you know 20 minute generally is the, is the presentation time with 10 minutes for q a at the end um so it's more short sharp presentations but yeah we're, we're all um all ears I like it. So there you go. There's a challenge for anyone listening. Uh, rather than sitting back and morning uh, or waiting for a call, you can can reach out. And if you're flooded with people now, which I apologise. Um, <laughs> but you did mention the DVSA then. And, and one thing I did like this year in particular was that it wasn't just Love Day Rider. As you said, there were other uh, representatives there. Um, I think Abigail... Oh, I've forgotten the same name. It used to be a Britain. Is it Halliday, I think, now? It's um, Holland now. She's gone from Holland. Britain to Holland. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know she was there talking about the uh, Reddit a pass campaign, and I think Amanda Lane was there. So I think it's it's that was good. I like the fact that it wasn't just come and talk about the the test waiting times. It was let's talk about these specific areas. But I, I did want to ask you about this actually because it was debated online, and, and I had a podcast where it was spoke about as well about the fact that the DVSA, uh, in particular of Day Rider, tends to be the the headline act at these events now from my personal standpoint i like a, a marketing standpoint fully understand why um, everyone knows who the dvsa is pretty much everyone will know who uh love day rider is and probably got a better chance of getting her if you say you're going on last rather than you you know 9 15 in the morning when no one's there yet but in terms of the industry is there a thought process there where perhaps someone like someone from the ADI and JSC. Obviously, you, you team up with us for them. You know, an actual body within the industry, could would they be better off being the headline event and showcasing someone from within the industry rather than the, the DVSA? Does that question make sense? Yeah, I think, to be honest with you, the, you know, we, we I would say, privileged to have Love Day Rider at the event. She's chief executive of, you know, the governing body of DVSA. So, you know, it's very good that she came and spoke and she spoke for the last couple of um, national conferences we've run. They don't get any particular special treatment apart from the fact, you know, Love Day gets the graveyard shift. You know, she's on last on the day. Um, we give her an hour slot um, basic, um, based on that. She's got a lot of uh, information to deliver in terms of, you know, her industry updates and, and, and the Q&A at the end, which is always very lively. Um, the, the other speakers on the day, they get equal billing really. Um, and, you know, we want the variety um, on the day for, for speakers covering, you know, test day nerves, mock tests, you know, driving in with a disability, marketing, tax advice, road safety. So, you know, we want variety. It's not a DVSA show at all. Um, but yeah, Love Day is probably the most recognized name on the agenda um whether people view her as the main reason to come on the day we don't really know um i know she does get a large audience but this national conference we just had there was standing room only for a lot of the um speakers as well which we were pleasantly surprised at um and actually for next year's conference we're already planning that now we we do need more seating on the day so we're going to be back at newark uh, we'll have more seating in that life stage area so everyone can um 
get a seat and we know there was a few issues in, in terms of hearing if you stood at the back so we're looking at having headphones for a bit like a silent disco you might have seen that which will help with um, people hearing um, what the speaker's actually saying and also help you know uh, quieten down the noise in that main expo area because it was a real um uh you know it was busy so you know it's a nice problem to have because there was 950 plus in that room all chatting to exhibitors and one another so there is going to be a a, a nice din it's a nice problem to have and um you know the acoustics in that place weren't the best but um we have to play the cards we dealt with really what i would throw in there as well is that yeah i say i went on hurley so i didn't see love day but quite a few people come to me and said they were impressed with her this year uh, and previously i think they'd said that she'd felt a little bit blase and repetitive but it felt like she this year she's like stepping up a game a bit so you know had good things to offer and i think the other thing i'll chuck in there is uh, that was just on the main stage so i was in one of the there were two other um rooms as well where people were talking and the the audio was fine in those you know there was no issue there it was just on the main stage where there was the audio she was one there but um the room i was in i was the last speaker so technically i was headlining that room so i'll, I'll settle for that yeah. um you mentioned there as well about the the audio issue, so I'm I'm glad you touched on that because the other one that want, the other one I wanted to ask you on slightly was the the queue, and I think the the queues that are there tend to stem from because people are getting the the passes, so they're queuing up to register to come in and that side of it. Obviously, it's not ideal. Is there any ways you can mitigate that going forward? Or is it just a case of doing the best you can? Yeah, and and thankfully it was a glorious day on on that Sunday. Um, so the people that did patiently and driving such a number of patient people, as we know, um, thankfully they were very patient and um, you know queued very nicely as British people tend to do, um, and got into the the venue. The, the issue we've got is that most people come to our event come for the full day. So whilst we had an extended period for the registration period, we opened it slightly earlier at quarter past eight this year. Um, it just wasn't big enough because we get a big bottleneck of people trying to get in between eight fifteen and ten o'clock, and, and getting that volume of people through the door at that time is a challenge. So. We realised that that was a frustration for many on the day. So for next year, we're looking at, instead of having a, um, a lanyard and a name badge printed on the day, and the reason we don't pre-print those is that we have twice as many people registered to come to our event on the day um, versus those that actually turn up. So we've got over 2,000 people registering with us just had less than a thousand who turned up so that's quite a lot of waste in terms of printing two thousand tickets um and having all those laid out um so we have to do it on the day uh, as efficiently as we possibly can we do realize that there is a bit of a bottleneck with that system we do appreciate that next year we do anticipate maybe another 20 percent through the door so there might be 1200 people through that through the door visiting our event next year so what we're looking at is doing electronic tickets so very much like when you go on holiday you've got a boarding pass which is on your phone um all you need to do is, is show that you get scanned proves that you've been to the event we can then issue you with the cpd certificate at the end of the day um and then we know how many people come through the door so that's what we're looking at doing and, and we're working with the guys that go roadie to look at doing that and hopefully they can they work their magic once more because they're brilliant at what they do um um, and that will still allow the exhibitors to scan the QR codes, which we've invested in that system. 
Um, so that is a good way of them contacting the delegates thereafter. Um, and it's quick and easy for them to do rather than waiting and spending one or two minutes each time getting the delegate to tell them the name, trying to a number, email address, and maybe missing out a digit, and then you can't get a hold of them. So we've got a very efficient system of, of delegate registration in place. Um, and so, yeah, moving to an electronic um, format of ticket would A, speed up the process of getting through the door. And, you know, we don't want people waiting half an hour, 45 minutes to get into the venue. Um, and like I say, we were quite lucky that the weather was kind to us this time. But if it had been raining, that would have been a big problem for us this year. So, yeah, we, we know we we got a few things um, to improve on um, and, and, and the audio with the headphones. We're also looking at maybe doing a marquee outside as well to give us more capacity for for so we know we know people that come to our event they want the content on the day so um that's that's what we're, we're we're looking at doing as well so there's a couple of things that we can do instantly that will improve the event um going forward for next year i, I do want to ask you about next year but i think it's right that I, I, I say something here because what you're doing is is brilliant you know you're putting on this event that is free for me as a driving instructor and anyone else who wants to attend it's free and, you know, I've come on here and spoke today and I've told you about some of the areas that I had concerns of. You know, I loved it. I'd being on last and, and the audio and the queue. But you're still doing this event for free to me. And I think there's a real delicate balance there between someone coming to you and saying, really enjoyed it, but, you know, could you have a look at these in future? And someone just having a moan. And I think there's too many people that do just have a moan and complain. and. At the end of the day, yes, you've got a business to run, but also you are giving me this event for free. I it doesn't it only costs me because I have to get there. There is no I'm not paying you, I'm not paying for the event or anything. I literally go down and get to take in what is it, six hours worth of CPD, a massive variety, as much as I want. And I just think that yes, I think it's right that we maybe come through and say this was a problem or this was my opinion, but also, I just want to take a moment to thank you for doing it because at the minute, you're the only show in town doing that. So, you know, I, I appreciate it and I think you do a cracking job. Is there room for improvement? Yes, you've identified it, but no one else is doing it anyway. So, you know, it's a big thank you from me. Now, and, and that's kind of you to say that, Terry. And to be honest with you, the delegate feedback we get yeah, and we send out a, a, a little survey the evening of the after the event, and the the there's overwhelmingly positive comments um fed back to us and like i said we're not perfect we don't get everything right we won't get everything right next year but you know anything that we can improve on we're not sat up in our ivory tower saying we know it's a free event we're the only show in town and you know you can like it along but we don't want that we want the instructors to come away excited invigorated better educated and tell people what a fantastic event they've had by coming to one of our events and that they'll come back next year and maybe some other instructors that they've spoken to will also come to that event. So that's why we've seen consistent year-on-year -year growth with our events and we're not resting on our laurels. We do want to improve things moving forward. Um, and, you know, we've got a good team as well. You know, the NJC are, are invaluable. You know, the team of volunteers that, that you know, Lynn and Sue in particular um, instrumental in helping structure the the, the the content on the day and, and and they're brilliant you know they all muck in and they do it you know out of the goodness of their hearts and and we couldn't do it without the guys at the NJC and that's really helpful they've got years and years of experience you know I'm not a driving instructor um they are um and it, and it works very well with with 
how we work with those and, and long may that continue. So yeah, we just want to keep raising the bar with with um with everything and how we approach things next year. We're already planning next year's events, you know. Um it's, it's like a hamster's wheel really with the events. Well, uh, I've got my fingers crossed. I'm sure you will, but fingers crossed that you crack that 1,000 barrier next year. Uh, so let me ask you about next year. Can you tell me what's coming up regarding the events and uh, the, the expos and the awards, that side of it? Yeah, so next year we're going to keep things a little bit fresh by mixing things up. So we're still going to be running the free-to-attend event at, at New York Showground. Um, we're doing that on the 29th of September. So Sunday, 29th of September, 2024, we're returning to New York Showground for the national conference. Again, we'll run that in association with the NJC. Um, but the spring event, we're mixing that up a little bit. So whereas the last couple of years, we've been running that um, event down at Kempton Park in Middlesex, we're actually going to um, change it up a little bit. So that's going to be paid for events. So delegates will pay a fee to come to that event. It's going to be a one-day conference, um, one main stage with 10 to 12 different speakers delivering um, really um, exciting content on on the main stage. Uh, we'll have an expo area uh, for them to engage with um, the exhibitors on the day. Um, that's going to be held at Yarnfield Park, which is a conference and event centre complete with a on-site hotel. So the night before that event, um, quite uniquely, we'll be running a networking dinner the night before. Um, so anyone who wants to stay over in the hotel, come for a three-course meal, sit down, relax, let your hair down, um, and network with other instructors or you know suppliers to the industry, very welcome to do that. We'll have some live entertainment to make it interesting and comedians lined up. We'll present some of the Intelligent Structure Awards that um, will be announced previously in, in February. Um, you know, the certificates will be handed out there. And, you know, most likely we'll be doing some sort of charity raffle for um, the speed of site who work very closely with who do some fantastic work as well. And so, sorry, that one will be on the 18th of May, uh, again on Sunday, at Yarnfield Park Conference and Event Centre, and that's in Stoke um, in Staffordshire. I quite like that you're mixing that up a bit uh, with the two different style of events there. Um, the one we, we need to pay for, have you have we got a price for that yet or is that still being decided? Or Yeah, we, we want to make it as affordable as possible for the instructors. Um, and so we're looking at around the around £100 mark um, all in. So, you know, for a full-day conference with some really top-level speakers that we're lining up on the day, It'll be around that mark. And then, yeah, if you want to come and stay the night before and have that three-course meal, there's a, a residential package, which we're going to you know, sell that as, as cost-effectively as possible as well. So, you know, that might be another £80, £90 on top for your overnight accommodation, three-course meal. So, you know, hopefully most people who come to that event will stay over and, and make a weekend of it. And you did mention before about the idea of people letting their hair down. I feel massively attacked by that, by the way. <laughs> um, but um, will that be like a capacity? Because obviously the, the the main national expo, people can just go. But will there be a limit to numbers on this one? So do people want to get in while they can sort of thing? Yeah, so we're going to have a, an early bird discount. So, you know, if people book up um, before the end of the year, They'll get um, a special discounted price to encourage them to book up early. Um, but because the Arnfield Park is is quite a big facility, um, 
the numbers that we're talking about, you know, we could have, we could get 400 sat down in in the main main room from a delegate point of view. I don't think we're getting close to 400. I think we'll be, you know, if you get 200, we're doing very well in the first year. Um, so yeah, if people want to book the ticket, um, you know, I'd recommend they do that soon rather than later and, and take advantage of that discounted early bird rate. Uh, but obviously, if if they need to wait a little bit longer until the new year. Um, to, to work out if they come or not, then obviously tickets will be available in, in the new year as well. Awesome. Uh, well, I do appreciate you giving us your time today. Is there anything else you want to touch on or do you just want to tell and remind people where they can find you? Yeah, well, no, um, all the information will be on our website, so intelligentinstructor.co.uk. Um, if anyone goes onto that website, um, you can navigate through to our events and, and find out more details about the location, the activities, the, the, the things that we're planning to do on the day. And we'll populate that and send out emails um, leading up to those events. And, and if people want to go to our website, they can sign up for a free newsletter. We send out a Friday afternoon roundup of industry news, um, which anyone can can receive if they're registered for that newsletter. Um, but yeah, we hope to see as, as many listeners um, at our events as possible. And yeah, thank you for your time, Terry. Appreciate you having me on as, as, as a guest once more. Pleasure. Thank you. So we are going to be back in just a moment with two live recordings from myself and Sophie Thompson and Phil Cowley and Diana Todd. But just before we get stuck into those, I want to take a moment to give a big shout out to some of the latest sign-ups to the Instructor Podcast Premium, and they are... Barry Davies, Sarah, Christine, Kirsty Hollinhead, Alex Jones, Tara McCann, Scott, Scott Walker, Susan, Sally Featherston, April Lawrence, and Samantha Singer. So big thank you to those guys for signing up. They immediately get access to a wealth of written, audio, and video content to help them improve their businesses and become an even more awesome instructor. If you would like to find out more about this, then check out the website, www.theinstructorpodcast.com. You can head to the show notes, find the links over there to get direct access, or drop me a message. I am happy to have a conversation, but one of the best ways to sign up is to sign up for a free week's trial where you can test the waters and test some of those shows and trainings and see what works for you. But... We're now going to get stuck into these two live recordings. So first of all, you're going to have myself and Sophie Thompson, and then it's going to be Phil Cowley and Diana Todd. Now, just a reminder before you listen to these, that these were recorded live, so the audio quality might not be quite up to the usual standard that you may expect, especially the laughter around some of my jokes, which seems to have faded a bit. But either way, let's get stuck in. So we will try to decide who to use the microphone and who to stand here, but we realise that there may be a issue. Um, so welcome to the Instructor Podcast, not as some people may call it, the Chris Benstead Podcast, and anyone that does goes down in my estimation, um, but it is a very special episode because I am live at the Expo, so this is a bit where you all cheer. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm also joined by the lovely Sophie Thompson. How are we doing, Sophie? I'm good, thank you. Can, can you hear me okay with this? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. And you are also known as a mindful fairy trainer. I am, yes. I'm on the t-shirt here. But before I ask you about that, I want to say you've kind of almost jumped onto the scene a little bit. Yeah. 
How's that been? You've got a lot of good feedback from instructors. It's been really overwhelming. I launched this project on the 4th of August and I was invited by Terry to speak to you all here on the 7th of August. So it's, it's been slightly chaotic and very unexpected, but no, the, the lovely feedback and the welcome from the whole industry has been overwhelming, really. People actually seem to care what I have to say, which is just lovely and yeah, it's, it's, it's been pretty awesome. <laughs> Uh, I'm very excited to, to get Sophie on, and uh, I think I scared her slightly with the first message I sent her, which was, we need to talk. With a full stop at the end. Yes. And everyone knows what that means. And that generally means that someone's either getting divorced or something's gone drastically wrong, and neither of those yeah. things happen because you agreed to come on, which is great. Yeah, I did find myself looking at that thinking, oh, three days into this and already Terry's breaking up with me. <laughs> but uh, you are the Mindful Theory Trainer, so do you want to start off just by telling us what is a Mindful Theory Trainer? So, I learned to drive quite recently. Um, I'm not an ADI, as some of you may know. I passed my actual practical driving test on the 26th of October last year, so I've not even had my license a year, and I'm stood here teaching all of you instructors how to suck eggs, which seems a bit odd, but I found when I was learning to drive, I was so anxious. And I probably think every instructor in this room has a story where a learner has been anxious. Maybe they've had a panic attack. Maybe that's caused them to make a mistake. Maybe you've had to intervene for safety reasons even. And I found the mindfulness practice that I was doing for my own reasons, for my own depression, for my own anxiety, had so much application for driving. But the thing that I was missing was the theory side of things. And I think when you're an anxious learner, it's all well and good saying, okay, I'm in the car, so I'm gonna do my grounding exercises, I'm gonna list five things I can see, do my breathing exercises, what happens when you panic and you can't remember what the speed limit is or you do something unsafe or illegal and your instructor has to intervene because your nerves and your fear cause all that theory that you study so hard for and you read the highway code and you did all the apps and the practice tests, what happens when that goes out the window? And for me, mindfulness is about being present and aware in the moment. And that starts right at the beginning when you're learning to drive. And the theory, as I've said on, on other podcasts, is just become a bit of a box ticking exercise, literally for the multiple choice section, but also theoretically, I need to get my theory just so that I can book my practical test. Got that done, forget about it. But the theory is the foundation for safe driving for life. And if we can bring mindfulness into that, then when we're driving, when we're having our lessons, when we're taking our test, we've got the awareness and we can use that to ground ourselves in the theory of what we're doing. And I think it's that mindfulness coupled with the theory that makes you a safe driver. And, you know, mindfulness is something that's growing in the industry. You know, we've got Sam Harper, but we've also got more theory training coming in through, i.e. Chris Spencer, who some of us may have just heard speak. So how are you combining those two? Because a lot of the work you're doing with learners, so how is that mindfulness coming into the theory specifically? A lot of the learners I've been working with, and, you know, that I've been doing one-to-one -one training with, for example, are really capable drivers. I've worked with people who, for example, have moped experience for years before they even think about learning to drive a car. And they're really intelligent and they're capable, and they understand the theory. What they're struggling with is passing the theory test, because I think we can probably all agree to a greater or lesser extent, knowing the theory and knowing how to pass the test are maybe slightly separate skill sets. 
you know, what Chris was saying about the wording of the question, sometimes it can trip you as a learner. You know what to do when you're in the car and you're presented with the real world situation, but when it's written in front of you in words you don't understand, that's when it causes you a problem. And I think the mindfulness for anxious learners can help with the theory because I know people who have taken the theory test upwards of five times because they know what they're doing, but then they sit in that little room in the little booth with the headphones on and it's a really slightly strange environment because it's so quiet and if you're anxious and you're sat there in that quiet and you can hear your own heartbeat and you're trying to click at the right time for the hazard perception and you're shaking that's going to be the issue not necessarily that you can't do it or that you don't know or that you don't understand but that your anxiety or in my case ADHD is holding you back from showing what you know so if we can be mindful in the study of the theory we can be mindful in the theory test and we get that lovely pass certificate and then we can move on to be mindful in the application of the theory. I can remember taking my part one and it was like the first time in morning was the appointment and it was at Christmas so it was blacker, like dark and snowy. So I thought it's like rush hour so I'm going to get into Bradford City Centre really early and I went up getting to the test centre about an hour and a half early and it was locked and closed. I thought, right, I'll go for a bacon sandwich, and everywhere else was locked and closed, and it was snowing. And I'm literally sat outside the test and waiting for it to open in the snow. So then when I go in, I've got my coat and my hat on, and it made me take it all off. And I can remember sitting there, my hands shaking off, thing, and I think back now, I thought, I wish I'd had some mindfulness stuff at that time. That would have been quite useful. So do I, in all honesty. I mean, I know I've told this story before, but when I did my theory test, I was five or six months pregnant. I was running about 15 minutes late, so I was literally running down the road to get to the test centre to try and get there in time, and I you know, think they're only supposed to give you five minutes anyway, aren't they, or they don't let you in, and I said, I'm pregnant, I ran here, let me in, and they let me take the test anyway, because it just happened to be the guy's first day. And if I'd had a bit of mindfulness training back then, I'd have done a lot better than I did, and I don't mind admitting, despite the fact that I train other people in theory, I scraped a pass. Chris talks about people failing by one, I passed by one. And when I did the practice test, I was getting 90, 95, 100%. So what went wrong? Well, I panicked. And I don't want to see that happening to other people. So we bring the mindfulness in and then we show what we can do. I think that's the key. It's not just about the fact you'll use it all the time is it it's just as a tool for when you do need it absolutely yeah it's just another thing to have in your toolkit i'm also keen to ask about the type of people that are coming to you you know are you finding it's it is predominantly people that are struggling with anxiety and that type of stuff are you getting that eclectic mix of people i'm getting quite a mix there are anxious people there are people with adhd um i helped someone quite recently who was struggling to actually figure out how to answer the questions because of dyslexia and he was a really good driver he knew what he was doing but the questions weren't accessible to him so i mean to go back to what chris was saying about motorway studs that one was a really big issue for him because he couldn't understand the wording of the question but the way his dyslexic brain was working he couldn't visualize what was where and imagine that picture and apply it to the questions he passed his practical test with zero driving faults because as I say, brilliant driver, but the way the test is structured just wasn't accessible to him and he failed it five times before he came to me. It was just a case of using the mindfulness skills to bring out his knowledge in a way that worked for his dyslexic brain. I'm also curious, have you had 
ADIs and PDIs coming to you regarding the theory stuff? Uh, and if not, is that something you offer? It's something I'm gradually branching out into. So yeah, I mean, if any PDIs do want some support with theory stuff, that is absolutely something that I'm, I'm able to help with. It's not something I've done much of, but yeah, it's, it's certainly something that I would be open to doing. I'm predominantly doing the theory stuff with learner drivers and with ADIs and PDIs. We're focusing more on the mindfulness because I do think you people are stressed for the most part and with good reason because you're not doing an easy job, you know. I, I have spoken to people who think, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of an easy ride, isn't it? You're sat in the car driving all day, you know, at the roundabout turn left, you know, you're going to do your reverse bay part now, you just sort of sat there in the car. No, you are not. <laughs> I know. And I think that, for me, I, I mean, I probably split my time doing as much of that as I do the actual theory training with learners, because it seems that there is a real need for it. You've annoyed me slightly because you're giving me a really good segue to the next section, but I'm not ready to go on to the next section yet. We'll put a pin in this then. We'll put a pin in now, because I asked this question on a recent episode of Six for 60, and it was, should ADIs be helping students with their theory? So I'm going to ask you as well, should ADIs be helping students with their theory? I'm going to give you a really annoying answer to that question. I think it depends. I think, for me, I did get some help with the theory from my instructor when it was necessary. And I think having that bit of support helped to cement the theoretical knowledge and helped me apply it to the real world situations. Because for me with my sort of ADHD and the way my slightly neurodiverse brain works, the information I was learning and the questions I was answering seemed to bear little, if any, relation to what I did every Saturday morning when I got in the car and I had my driving lesson. So to have a bit of theory support from my instructor just joined it all together. I don't think everyone needs that. And I think for some learners, combining the theory and the practical in that way confuses things a bit. But on the whole, yeah, I, I would say that it should be incorporated into the lessons because otherwise it, it becomes a case of passing the test and forgetting everything and you want the theory to be the basis for the safe driving. So yeah, I'll, I'll give you all the instructors another thing to do. Thank me later. But uh, just to give you another little plug, if there's any instructors that don't want to help with the theory, they can always send them to you, can't they? You can book via the website, yeah. But let's rewind slightly, go back to what you said about driving instructors being stressed, because that's yeah. a nice little segue into what we can add on to this, because one of the other things to do is you help driving instructors with their stress levels and, and that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm going to ask you guys a question. So, uh, hands up, please, everybody. Just one hand. And keep your hand up. Or not, in fact, put your hand down if you regularly practice self-care and look after yourself. There's an awful lot of hands that have stayed up there. You can put them down now. Does that surprise you, Sophie? A lot of people not regularly practicing self-care? That does not surprise me in the slightest. Um, I have encountered a lot of different instructors in my career. I mean, I worked for a driving school for 18 months before I started doing this. So I have about two years experience in the driver training industry and I've met so many instructors who work every hour God sends, have 20, 30 learners a week, all at different stages, all with different needs, you're trying to get everyone through their test, but not only are you doing that, you want everyone to be a safe and confident driver, 
And we talked about the wedding cake of stress. That's just one tier. And then you've got your own life, your own stresses, your own standards check looming. And by the time you've done all your lessons for the week and everything you need to do, and I think this is particularly true for self-employed driving instructors who do everything, or maybe you run a business, maybe you're in charge of a driving school, maybe you're training PDIs. There could be any number of things adding to this wedding cake of stress for you. When do you find time for self-care? And what effect does that have on you as a person, but also as an instructor? Where would people start? So if no one's taking any time at all, and we're doing that thing where, because we can, we're working 60 or 70 hours a week, and or like me, you're working 20 hours of driving lessons, then 50 on top on the podcast and stuff, whatever it is you're doing, and you don't have time for that self-care, where would you start? For me, that is where the beauty of mindfulness is, because sometimes your mindfulness practice can be like me. It can be finding a quiet place to sit in your garden and meditate for half an hour and have birdsong and incense and whatever else you want. And that can be really effective, but you don't have to do that. Sometimes it can be a case of you've arrived for your lesson three minutes early and your learner's not come out yet because they're a bit flaky and you can sit there in your car for three minutes and just just relax your shoulders. You know, you, you, you probably need to do it now because I do this 50 times a day. If your shoulders are feeling a bit tense, just, just drop them. There's a few people doing that. Cause, you know, we all carry a lot of tension because we're all stressed all the time. And maybe sit there for that minute or two that you have to spare and think, how am I? And the thing with mindfulness is you don't have to sit there and think, I'm really positive. Everything is sunshine and rainbows. The world is amazing. You can sit there in your car and think, I've just had three back-to-back terrible lessons. I'm really struggling with that annoying learner. We've all got one. Don't pretend you don't. And you can sit there and think, what am I doing? Why did I become an ADI? I want to go back to working in Lidl. And that's okay. You can look at how you're feeling and observe it in a non-judgmental and non-attached way. And you don't have to fight with it and think, oh, no, I shouldn't be thinking like this. I shouldn't be negative. I have to put a positive front on. You can just think, yeah, I feel really crap today. And that, for me, is the start. Because you have to know where you are to know how you want to change. What I do is actually mindfulness-based CBT. So it's to do with awareness of your thought patterns, awareness of how you're feeling, and trying to rationalise out the things that aren't working for you. As I say, the beginning of that is just take a minute and you can do that while you're driving between lessons, while you're parked up waiting for a student and just notice how you are. Because I would imagine you've quite often had a a day when you've got five back-to-back lessons, maybe a couple of tests, whatever's going on in your day because you are really busy and you get home and you've not noticed all day that you are tired, stressed, thirsty. How are you going to look after yourself if you don't even know how you are? I mean, one of the things that a couple of times there was uh, back-to-back lessons. Anyone that's listened to me for long enough will know that I don't do that anymore. My personal approach is to put a big gap between. Uh, there's sometimes I'll have an hour, there's other times I'll have 90 minutes between lessons. And just as I say that, I did see a couple of faces kind of go, oh God, 90 minutes between lessons. And look, I appreciate that's not going to be right for everyone. But I think that it's important we actually make time between lessons. So whether you're, you know, give yourself 15 minutes and you're rushing, well, make it 20, make it 30. You know, you don't have to 
do the extreme that I do. But my personal example there is when I changed that money, I did that. I started enjoying my driving lessons again, like properly enjoying my lessons when it, that enjoyment had been dipping. And it was because it was, as you just said, back to back lessons. It takes the fun out of it. It makes it feel like a, a 10 hour day rather than, you know, three, two hour day, the like lessons or whatever it is. Is that something you're coming across working a lot of instructors that it's, it's, you know, wedged in like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was working for the, the driving school that I started with, part of my role was organising instructors' diaries. And at a certain point, I was actually given special dispensation. When any instructor tried to book six lessons in one day to say, hang on a minute, you're not doing that, because people would. People would say, well, I can start at seven and I can finish at seven and then I can get six lessons in and then this person is almost ready for their test. So if we get them in three times this week, I'll have to do 12 hour days, but then we can get them a cancellation next week. And I'm having to say, when are you going to eat and sleep? To which the answer usually came, I don't know. And I just think it's, it's so prevalent, but I'm gonna say, while that is a terrible idea, do not try and do six lessons in one day. It's not your fault. The amount of pressure, and I think certainly since COVID, on instructors to get people in for their lessons, get them through their test in the fewest hours possible. And we've all got that learner who's saying, I'm going to take my test after 10 hours because my mate passed after 10 hours. And you have that whole headache of trying to deal with that. The pressure is piling up, isn't it? For a lot of people. So you're trying to give more and more booking more and more lessons per day, and then the effects of that end up compounding themselves. And it's only by slowing down, applying the brake, that you can actually find the time for the self-care that enables you to do, do the job better. You, you can't pour from an empty cup. I know that's such a massive cliche and I hate saying it, but it is true. And the other one is you can't, you must put your own oxygen mask on before anyone else. So why don't you try not working 12 hour days and instead be in the moment like terry does have a bigger gap maybe and i know this is going to sound radical to a room full of instructors but hear me out take a lunch break when was the last time anyone did that and not a sandwich in one hand while driving with the other i, I just think i'm really passionate about this and i, I feel a bit of a that's what I'm saying it because I'm not an instructor and I'm telling you how to do your job but I have seen the effect it has on people I have seen instructors burnt out I've seen instructors depressed I've had them crying at me because they want to quit the industry because the job is pressuring them so much and I'm giving you permission not that you need it but I'm giving it to you to put yourself first do some self-care trust me it will pay off I mean, for someone that's uh, not an instructor, you've got a pretty good grasp of how we run this day to day. So they tell me. You're not the first person to say that, actually. I think the thing we're doing now, I think maybe this is where I found it hard, so perhaps some of you guys will find it hard, is that what you're effectively saying is helpless people and earn less money. Yeah. <laughs> how do we overcome that? Because that's quite a big thing to change. It is, and I'm just going to touch on what you said there about earn less money. Um, that's not what I'm saying. Um, please pay your mortgage. What I am saying is do that in a way that is not going to burn you out. So you need to find a balance. If you need to work 60 hours a week because you have a mortgage and you have to feed seven kids, 
Okay, fine. But let's take these mindfulness concepts and make them work for you. So you don't necessarily have to change what you're doing. You don't have to go to having 90 minute breaks between lessons or doing car park yoga, which I think is a brilliant idea and you should trademark that. But what you can do is, as I say, if you've got five minutes, check in with yourself between lessons. It's, it's probably so tempting to go between lessons, thinking about your previous lesson, thinking about the tests you have to book, thinking about who's got their theory coming up, thinking about who failed their test last week and now you've got to fit them in the diary again. And you've booked someone else in their slot because you thought they were going to pass and what are you going to do? And, and then you've got, you know, your phone calls, you know, this was a thing back in my old job. I was always ringing the boss between lessons and it's like, give him a break, come on. Take those five minutes, slow down because you can only do what you can do. And I think a really twee phrase that I've been using is that you can only operate within your personal speed limit. I like that analogy. <laughs> but you don't have to change what you're doing. We can use these concepts to make what you're doing work for you in a more mindful way. I think, again, you make some really good points there. And one key one is if someone comes to repossess your house, they won't accept, but at the expo, Sophie said, they won't, so please don't try that. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned car park yoga then, which I've no idea where that reference is coming from, but that's, it's individuals, isn't it? So like for me, I find those 90 minutes work really well, but for me, that's not just about, you know, sitting down doing that. It's about doing a bit of yoga, it's going for a walk, and it's doing stuff like my social media as well. So that 90 minutes is beneficial to me. So how important is it that each individual instructor in this room gets a system that works for them where I'm just going, yes, what Terry said and Sophie said. Oh, it's, it is absolutely vital. You don't have to do anything that I tell you to do or, or not do anything that I tell you not to do. It is about making mindfulness your own. So what you said about social media, that could be a really useful tool, especially if you're self-employed or if you're within a smaller driving school or even the bigger ones, you know, you, you can use that to network with other people and talk about how it's going. You know, I talk to loads of instructors every week, often in the DMs, and we'll just say, oh, how's it going? Well, I've had a bit of a difficult week with my training, or I've got a load of tests coming up, I'm really stressed about it. And you can use that as your mindfulness thing, make connection with other people a priority as a way of checking in with yourself. Or you can use that time to go and do some downward dog in a car park if that's what works for you. You can use that time to maybe find somewhere quiet, as I say, have a bit of lunch and blast some music, listen to a podcast maybe, you know, it's, it's all about doing what you enjoy. It doesn't have to be incense and whale song. It's just taking some time for yourself. And a lot of people find mindfulness and meditation and all these techniques a little bit daunting because they think I have to sit and I have to clear my mind. That's not what it's about. It's about noticing what you're thinking non-judgmentally and making it your own. You don't have to sit there like some kind of Buddhist monk. You just have to take a break. That is literally all I'm telling you to do. I'm, I'm constructing a whole business that's telling you to take a break. But on the surface, it really is that straightforward. So just, just do what feels right for you because it's for your benefit. There are no rules. And, and a little top tip for me, if you do do yoga in the car park, do not do downward dog in the empty space 
you need to do a pause where you can see the incoming car turning into the bin. Cobra or sun salutation or something. Yeah, and I'm not saying that from experience. Um, <laughs> I am curious though, and I appreciate you may not be going, able to enter specifics here, but with the instructors that got in touch with you, what are the other problems you've seen? I'm interested to see how much they resonate with the, the audience. I have encountered, I'm not going to say every problem, but a lot of different problems that are to do with driver training, like I'm terrified of my standards check, I think I'm going to fail, I might quit being an ADI, or every test I go to, I fear that I'm going to meet that standards check trigger, so I'm trying to like the word trigger, didn't we? But, and there's that constant fear hanging over them for every test, and there's all these different driver training related issues. But it turns out, I learned this about halfway through the process of learning to drive. Driving instructors are people too. So you're going through things. You are dealing with relationship issues. You're dealing with illness, bereavement, personal problems, financial issues. You name it, people are dealing with it. And you bring that with you in the car very often. And what's happening is you're not finding time for yourself. So you're not finding time to address those issues. And then you're in the car trying to get your students through your tests. And if your students are anything like me, they're going to have a panic attack while trying to turn right at a junction and then spend the next 10 minutes regaling you with all their childhood trauma. I did that once in a lesson, genuinely. And I sat in my instructor's car crying because I had a mental breakdown in the middle of a lesson because I stalled. And he had to take all of that on and try and calm me down and then go to his other lessons the rest of the day where he had four other learners who all had their own issues and you're absorbing that like a sponge and then you go home to find you've had your invitation for your standards check that day and then anything else i mean i'm not even going to list examples just you know you you know what's going on for you you know what's stressing you out you know what's there in the back of your mind when you're trying to teach a student the reference points for a bay park or not as the case may be I'm not here for that debate now, but every possible issue that you could have comes up and it's all about finding the, the key things that underpin that and I think that's why mindfulness is so helpful because it's a few basic strategies in your toolkit that you can use and you can bring out whatever a day in the life of an ADI throws at you. I mean, uh, reference points for your beer park, we cover all the... Uh... Exciting stuff on this yeah. one. We're not going to start an argument with that one. Yeah, if anyone wants to come and fight me on that in the car park, I'll um, see you outside. But you know, let's picture that day. You kind of just described it. You've you've had those your free lessons or whatever. Your mm -hmm. students had a, a terrible one. She's crying. They're upset. You have one where you've had to grab the wheel because stuff's going wrong. Then you get a cancellation, so you're down on your money. Then you get home and. I can see Stuart Locker in the back, so you get that dreaded brown envelope that's about the standards check, and you stress to help. Yeah. What do you do? Well, um, I'm actually going to turn that around. What do you do? Anyone want to give me some examples of what you do? Yes. I always make sure I've got at least one day down my allotment. Nice. Completely nice allotment, yes. That works. I mean, I knit which is actually not dissimilar. You know, you've got your plants, you've got your knitting. It's all these things that quiet activities that give you a bit of headspace and a bit of calm time. Anyone else have anything they do? It can be constructive or not. Yeah. Football. football, yes. 
sport, exercise, it's all part of looking after yourself. Yeah. Martial arts, punch things. Yeah, please, punch more things, not, not your learners. Um, but yeah, but it's all about finding something you enjoy that gives you balance. You need to work hard and you need to play hard. So give yourself a break, like I've said repeatedly, find something to do that gets you out of your head. Uh, that conflicts with what I just said because mindfulness is about noticing what, what you're thinking and why you're thinking it, but sometimes what you need to do is stop ruminating. How often do you do that? I mean, I do it all the time. I lie awake thinking about seven different emails I haven't replied to and what am I doing tomorrow? What, what admin have I got behind with because the ADHD, I don't keep on top of anything. Get out of that for a bit would be my advice. And then once you've done that, you can return to your car, to your learners and say, okay, I've had a break. Now I can check in with myself. Maybe I'm okay today. Maybe I'm stressed. Maybe I'm feeling the pressure. Maybe there's tension in my shoulders. Maybe I'm hungry, but you need to give yourself a little space. And I think by cramming the day with six lessons and all this, all the pressure you're putting on yourself with that, you're going to burn yourself out. So I must admit, on this mindfulness presentation, I did not expect to um, get punching and violence brought into the equation. Uh, but we are coming to the end now, so all that's left for me to say, first of all, a big thank you to Sol for joining me today. And thank you to you guys for coming along. It's been a pleasure as always. Um, so I'm Diana, and today we're going to be talking about judgment and the skill that the one that most of us don't teach. So we do this um, wonderful approach to the roundabouts where we sit and we say central mirror, right mirror, right signal up. Off the gas, clutch down, into seconds, look to the right, is it safe? Notice how the change of instruction with that life and death decision, <laughs> we go over to you, or we go completely quiet. So today, in our presentation, we are going to give you a little bit of tips, tools, <clears throat> techniques that you can use when exploring this skill with your pupils. Yeah, so um, judgment is one of our uh, loose, high prime um, skills. And so that's what we in taking that, taking that all. Um, so the high five skills are um, car control, um, awareness, planning, anticipation, and judgment. Um, we've slightly changed it for our high five questions. And um, so the way we sort of have our five levels yeah. of questions is you have a action question, which is your very basic. Um, if you were, say, approaching the regional carriageway, you may ask the people, where are you going to look? Now, what you're looking for there is a action for them to do. Um, you would then move on to your awareness question of what are you looking for? Um, and then a anticipation question of what might that car do? Um, and then... Yeah. And then we stop there, or most of us stop there. And then we're on to the planning. And that's what are we going to do? So, some of the questions that I would typically ask in a lesson is, if we're thinking about sort of joining the dual carriageway, is tell me at what point you're going to choose lanes or choose to merge lanes. 
tell me at what point you're going to choose not to go. Equally, that's just as important in that life and death decision. You need to understand they have got processes and that comes into the planning. So moving on to judgment then. Um, like Diana said earlier, we, we find that a lot of um, sort of PDIs don't necessarily teach judgment, partly because it's quite hard to teach the phone because um, there's so many different factors that go into making that decision. And the so what we look for there is that we should be having those conversations with, pu with pupils because when you go driving, you make hundreds and hundreds of mini decisions every single time you go driving. So we need our, our, our learners to not know, not just know how they make that decision, but how they're going to then make those decisions as we as they move forward in similar situations when we're not in the car next to them. Um, so if they can sort of analyze how they make those decisions, they can then apply that as they move as they move forward. The best thing about judgment for me, especially um in part three of Sanders check, if you invest the time in digging a little bit deeper into judgment and how those decisions are made and the insights into those decisions and all the lovely factors that we take into account when we're just going through life and harness them in the journey of learning to drive, then you guys can exploit that in your part three and in your standards check. Extract that information with really simple questions like, how are you deciding that? Because you've already dug a little deeper in your previous lesson, so if we incorporate this daily into our sort of journey, if you like, it is an absolute gift when you get that opportunity to do so in your party and your studies generally simply asking prompt questions and then the pupil does all the showing off for you. Hopefully we'll give you some tips and tricks on how to manage that. So what factors do we take into consideration when we're looking at judgment? And it's not an easy skill to teach. It's definitely a sort of higher level thinking. We'll come to that in a minute. Uh, forgive me for standing behind this lecture. It's just the, you know, I'm the Scottish girl. And I know you guys need to understand me. Stuart's the Scottish guy, I'm the Scottish girl. Um, and basically, with the factors, we were sort of brainstorming it. Uh, I'm not going to teach you guys the obvious, but we were looking at speed, distance, body language of the car as well. Um, a couple of the obscure ones that we explored were traffic. You know, how busy is it? Because if the traffic is busy, I'm going to take a smaller gap a safer, smaller gap, I don't know where this is being recorded, um, a safer, smaller gap than I would if it's quieter. I'm going to be more decisive in my choice of getting out there. Vehicle type, who am I going to get to? Is it a bus? Is it a lorry? Or is it an Audi? You know, or any sport kind of choice. Um, precious. <laughs> But actually, these are the factors that I'm taking into consideration when I'm approaching a roundabout and there's a stopped bus on my right and I've got a wheels moving or Fiesta. I really know nothing about cars, but yeah, small car. And that will help me get out every day of the week. Unless there's something on that roundabout, I'm taking that gap. So some other um, factors that we, we considered is maybe um, how familiar you are with your vehicle. So you might get a brand new car. 
Um, I'm going to be maybe making decisions to the car that I've been driving for 10 years. Um, you think about your sort of experience and skill as a driver would affect how you make decisions and how you learn as to make decisions. Maybe even the time of day might make a decision. And then who you've got in the car with you. Um, so for example, a learner might make a different, any driver might make a different decision with their driving instructor next to them versus their parents next to them or versus their friends and, and the peers next to them. Um, so that's the conversations we need to be having with our learners. So when, even when they make good decisions, and how would this be different if your mates were egging you on a little bit? Um, and have those decisions about how they would uh, find a solution around that, that sort of peer pressure and, and how that affects their decision-making. So we thought this might be a good opportunity for any of you that want to take some sort of key skills away. If you want to take some pictures, any of the slides. I know I do this often in some of the seminars. And I also wanted to touch on the fact that instructors tend to go all around the houses. PDIs maybe more so on asking what yeah, perfect question. So I'm spending one Yeah, the perfect question. And my advice to you would be to keep it simple. There's nothing wrong with using the word that's in the skill as your question. How are you juggling that? There's nothing wrong with that question at all. You're going to get some really good, helpful answers. So we thought we'd explore that. And one of the key things that I would suggest we do is explore it with your pupils. So in our lessons, we say to our pupils, judgment. How would you explain that to a four-year-old? How would you help them understand what it is you want them to do? And for me, it's almost a light bulb moment because whatever word they use is going to be the word you can you on throughout your lesson. It's all about building that rapport, it's the language that your pupils um, connect with. So we explored a couple of alternatives using a facade. <laughs> and basically, we came up with a couple of these. I'm not going to list them. I'll let you guys sort of take a picture and explore that. But one thing I'd like to suggest is this applies to all the kinds of skills. So you can't control, you know, your anticipation and your planning. And we're just sort of highlighting it for judgment because that's what the presentation's about. But absolutely get your learners finding alternative words and ways of explaining these skills because it's a really brave thing learning to drive and the more we can put it in their language, the better. Oh, me again. Tell me, gosh, we didn't debut this up very well, did we? Jesus, right, okay. So, <laughs> me again, high game questions. So, this is what we do when we want to dig really deep into the learners' insights, their thought. If for me, you never get a one word answer when you ask a really good high game question, it's going to tell you where their mind is at. Before you ask that question, believe me when I say you have no idea for their mind design until they give you that answer. And ah, oh, what a light bulb moment it can be. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so a couple of questions we, we wanted to come up with. Um, um, my go-to question is what factors are you taking into account when 
deciding whatever you're deciding, you can use that in any context. Um, also, just as simple as how do you de- how did you decide that? Um, so they don't have to be um, complicated questions to get good answers from pupils. Um, so yeah, that they might all kind of first two go to. And for me, I think the the biggest takeaway that I want you guys to take away, or my objective for this presentation, is if you're going to ask one of these again questions. I'm going to steal Stuart's line. If anybody was in Stuart's talk earlier, shut up. Just shut up. I'm so sorry to be rude, but just stop talking. Let them think and give you that answer. And it's very very different if they say, I don't know. Then absolutely, we can coach them through that. But silence is golden. Welcome back, because that's the thought process. But just to follow on from uh, Phil's, we've got... How will you decide not to go or to go? What factors are you taking into account? Try not to ask more than one primary question at a time, unless they're really struggling, and give them that time to really develop that thought process. I have a story, but I can see Phil's eyeballing me as if to say, don't, don't go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, like Diana alluded to earlier, you can if you're if you're struggling and you're stuck there, and I've seen this plenty of times with PDIs where you're stuck struggling for the question. Use the the word of the skill you're you're training in the question. So it can't be just as simple. How are you judging that, um, or how are you aware? What are you aware of doing some of the other skills? Um, another one I like to look at is um, what clues are you looking for? Um, and I like to play a little game of being a detective. Um, and so we drive around and we try and search for all the clues that what's going to make, um, basically who's going to try and hit us. Um, so yeah, the, we, we just become little detectives and we go searching for clues. Um, and so that question really gets people's thinking and hunting for information. So um, let's put it into practice. Now we're going to help give you some of those key questions that we use in our everyday lessons for our favourite topics, roundabouts, uh, which are just a fancy junction. Um, so some of our sort of go-to questions for that is where's your next gap coming from? So we really have to decide or analyze or assess those lovely words that we see earlier in the presentation. And then you can follow that up with how did you make that decision? So you see how we're right, the devil is in the detail, if you like. So yeah, what have you done? Um so um you could ask uh, questions along the lines of um who is who will help us as we go on to this found about I love this question because it's getting the pupils to think of the other drivers as friends and people that are going to help you get into the right part role. These big scary people will quite crush into you. Um, so it just turns that mentality around. So who, who, who's going to help us get into this roundabout? Um, and then also, like again, similar to Diana's question, sort of kind of tell me how you would know or how you did know. And again, trying to be that sort of proactive or retrospective, um, depending on your level of the, the people you're, you're training at the time. And one of my sort of favourite questions, and loads of PDIs and ADIs um, query this with me, is uh, how will you know it's safe to go? The reason I wanted to sort of flag that question is it's very different from is it safe? Because I don't want to pay a 50-50 guess on that learner making, you know, a guess, a guess decision 
and to judgment. I want to know what those thought processes are. I want to know how they're thinking. I want to know if their mind is distracted because even that will give me a little bit of a heads up. So how will you know it's safe to go in and to, to um, compliment films? This can be proactive or, or a retrospective. You know, we can talk about it in advance, but then equally so we can, and something you do brilliantly, is that positive um, reinforcement. Yeah, absolutely. Give you later. Um, it's like what I'm doing, isn't it? I feel like we're bouncing off each other. Disjointed, but anyway. Um, so yeah, how will you know that it's safe to go? And it's it, it can be proactive, or how did you know it was safe to go? Was it a good decision? Yeah, tell me why. So it's all about that devil in the detail. So another thing I like to do with uh, my learners is uh, enforce that they made a good decision or a poor decision, I suppose you can, but personally, I don't do the positives. Um, and so once we've exited the roundabout, I'll ask my learners to check their mirrors and see where the car is that they just moved off in front of. Um, how close is it? How far away is it? Is it more than you expected or less than you expected? And it helps them sort of go, well, next time I see that situation, I know that I'm going to have this face once I've moved off. Um, and it just reinforces those sort of kind of brain connections that that was the correct decision because I saw the evidence of, of it once I exited the roundabout. Um, so doing that with pupils will really sort of reinforce that they're getting it right and, and that can then kind of help them in the future without necessarily thinking. And um, another little game that I like to play, works really well around about, but just emerging at junctions in general, is the yes and no game. Put your hands up if you've heard of it. Okay, fabulous. Okay. Um, if you haven't heard of it, uh, we have a little QR code at the back so you can scan it and it'll give you, it's one of my lessons, please don't judge. Um, but it's quite a meaty lesson, it's a long lesson, but it will give you an insight into that yes and no game. Basically, what we do is on approach to the roundabouts, <coughs> I get the pupil using one word, yes or no, can we go, you know, is there a gap? And what will happen is, as they're coming up to that junction, they will decide, just looking at the size of gap, they can't even see the um, verdict or whatever it would be to the right yet, and they're making that decision. The best thing about this game is, who here's done the Diane Hall workshop with the, the monkey and the chimp and the brain and stuff? Yeah, excellent. Um, it sort of calms down your amygdala. The amygdala is that sort of fear thing. Um, or a monkey or whatever, something that's going off in your brain going, there's a scary roundabout, <laughs> I think it's a cheetah. Um, it's a roundabout, that's all it is. And what that will do for the pupils will get them to logically calm that anxiety down. Yes, 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 no, 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 yes, yes, yes. And they just glide out of there. It's like that beautiful light bulb woman. So try it. Please feedback and, and let me you know if it works for you as well. It also sounded like the guy from Father um, Ted's sometimes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you want to click the next one? So, um, cyclists, and there's so many things going on when we, when we see cyclists, and so many decisions and judgments that need to be made. <laughs> how far away are we going to keep from the cyclists? How far are we going to be when we overtake? How fast are the cars coming towards us? How far away are the cars coming towards us? There's just a billion 
decisions being made. And so, again, it shows that importance of why we need to be having these conversations with our learners and getting them to dig into those sort of different factors. Um, so one of the uh, questions I would ask your pupil um, approaching, but you have to kind of make sure you get these questions in early enough because they, they need time to think before they, before this is, how will you know it's safe to overtake the cyclist? So again, going back to what we were talking about around last night, is it safe to overtake the cyclist? Because you get that yes, no. So how will you know? And, and they start then hunting for that information of what they're going to need to see to overtake that cyclist. Um, one of my go-tos as well, especially with cyclists, because we, we can't always, you know, sort of be ready for them. They might come across us when we haven't gone through that process yet, is to use a controlling question. And many of you who would have listened to, to Lou is control before educate. Absolutely. In fact, all the trainers would say that too. Um, so we will say things like, give me two reasons why you're going to overtake that cycle. So I'd suggest that that type of question, or give me two reasons why you're not going to overtake that cyclist, I suggest that these are slightly later on in the journey. So we've we've missed the boat on the high gain question, and we're having to control that learner's environment. And then we're still digging into the details. But we've had a theme here. We don't want it to be a 50-50 guess on, you know, is it safe to overtake? Give me two reasons why you are going to overtake. So they go and overtake and they give you their two reasons. So number one I use if we think, particularly we've been stuck behind cyclists for a while, and I will ask the people, rather than wait for that opportunity and then they don't take it, um, ask them, well, but what, what are you going to need to be able to see to take that gap? And again, that gets them thinking, like, well, I need, I need a long straight or I need a gap in the traffic. And that, that way, when they do see it, they're able to then take it. And we're not having that conversation at that point because we've then missed the opportunity. So it's being that proactive again and getting them thinking before the event so that when the event happens, we can learn from the positive of them guessing it right. Um, and then once we're overtaking the cyclist, we need to, I hear a lot of instructors talk about like, how, how far away from the cyclist should you be? And they're looking for like 1.5 meters. Um, and again, it's, that's not the important question. The, the important question is how have they got away with working out how far away from the cyclist they need to be? Do they know how to judge that 1.5 meters or put into place their car? So again, it's like rather than the fact that they need the, the way of working it out. We didn't give you a chance to do this, but feel free to take some pictures of those questions um, if you want to use them in your lessons from now on. What I might do is after the presentation, I'll be back to the uh, roundabouts one and give you some of that. Um, okay. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about was eating traffic. And this is the one that really messes up our learners in terms of that decision-making process and the judgment. And it's a bit of a meaty topic, pardon the pun, um, because there's so much going on. And some of the little judgment questions that we ask on there are things like, how are you going to know that that car is giving way to you? Or um, how will you judge what the car is going to do? Have you got a way of working that out last year? And then, sort of last but not least for me, is um, how will you know what the car behind is going to do? 
So there's lots of things digging deeper, not only on what's going on in front of you, because that's where they're locked on. It's a little bit like a, a sort of fighter pilot. They lock on to the bus that's coming towards them, but forget that Maverick's coming up the side with the parked car. And it's getting them to scan and be aware and then include that in that decision-making yeah, so um, Brian has talked there about um, the other vehicles around you and, and you also need to have an opportunity when teaching in traffic to discuss how we're judging what we're doing. So when we are pulling into gaps, um, how are you judging your speed? Um, have you got a, work, a way of working out where you're going to place the car? Um, so that those factors of like how big is the gap? Uh, how much time have I got to get into the gap? That sort of thing. Um, and then moving on, uh, another um game I like to play um, when we're doing meeting traffic, I'll see you the bus as well, is the no stopping game. Um, so we challenge our pupils to drive a certain distance, a certain amount of time without stopping the car. And again, this works really well for their judgment because they have to look so much further down the road, work out what the cars are doing so much earlier, and, and they're having to make those judgments on what the cars are doing, but also what speed am I going to do? so that I pass that car at the right time and not have to stop and put my camera on and go into first gear and then I'm sat there for 20 minutes. Um, so yeah, the no stopping game was brilliantly for, for me in traffic and other, other skills as well. Okay, so give me a chance to take um, some pictures of that if you think it would be beneficial. And one of the sort of key things that we wanted to do today was give you something to take away. So it's all very well, you know, coming to the, the, the expo and make some really good notes. But just like our learners, we need to then put it into practice. So you have some homework. And actually, it's really simple. All we want you to do is think about the decisions that you guys make daily. How are you making judgment decisions on your day-to-day -day driving? Um, and, and I am going to tell the story because we have time. I'm really sorry. But... When I was a PTI, it's going to kick me in the shins later, I'm sure, but please surround a circle. Um, but one of the things was when I was a PTI and I was doing these lovely Zoom sessions, um, I honestly thought I would be the bee's knees when I got into my lenses. I was like, I've got all these questions. I'm going to nail this. Oh, yeah, I've got 10 minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a long story. Um, and then I asked the question. And it was, you know, side of the road. And I asked, you know, the level one, two, three question. I hit my learner with, if you get a way of deciding when not to pull off or move on. And the people looked at me and he went, no. I went, oh. Okay, so anyway, uh, there's your gap. Let's go. <laughs> so I had no substance behind it. I had all the questions, but I hadn't analysed how I make a decision to help them understand. So by all means, go out there to your pupils to give you the answers, but see if they generally, genuinely hit you with I don't know. Help them. In order to do so, you need to understand what factors you guys are taking into account. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um. So, thanks. Um, so write, um, write down a few questions and don't overwhelm yourself. Now, actually, we, we did this for our presentation, so we've obviously given you a whole bunch of questions that you might want to go away and use. 
don't try and use them all at once because one year people will be like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and also it's going to overwhelm you. Um, so pick two, three, write them down, stick them on your dashboard and, and do them until they feel natural. Um, reword them so they make sense in, in how you talk as well. But actually, to be honest, I would do that for what you've done for the whole day. I'm sure you've been to loads of, loads of talks and got loads of information. Don't try and go put it all into one lesson. Um, just like pick one thing, do that for a week or a few days, move on, put something else and do it until, don't do it until you can do it, do it until you can't not do it. Um, and, and that's when you know it's ingrained in you and, 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 and working. And, um, last but not least, evaluate them. So a bit like what Phil said, don't try and do it on one go. And equally, so don't turn into this, this random alien that your pupils, like, never experienced before. And tell them. Tell them you've been on a workshop. Tell them you've been... No, but uh, and, <laughs> and, and tell them that you're putting some questions into practice and ask for their feedback as well. Because what's right for us might not be right for you. It's about finding your own way as well. One piece of advice is if you're going to ask one of those sort of high gain questions, make sure it's in a really safe environment. They've got time to think and it's appropriate to the pupils' level. This round. Um, yeah, that's us, believe it or not. We actually got time for I think you started it, it was helped. Yeah, that really, really, really helped. We've got five minutes now. I'd really excited, stroke, nervous to take your questions. Tommy, did you want to take the microphone? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we've been throwing Tom under the bus a little bit because we're like, we won't have time. Oh, come on, please. Yeah, He's going to kick me in the shin. Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, thanks a lot for today. Um, just wanted to ask, I have a people who really struggles with um, the sense of how fast cars are going. She can move off okay, but when we're on a dual carriageway, so I don't know how I know I can judge the car coming up if I can get out. Do you have any tips? Big question. Oh. <laughs> I, was waiting, I was waiting for you. Um, um, and you've taken the microphone off you. I was going to bring it back to you. How do you judge it um, when you when you join the dual carriageway? Okay, so this is what we were talking about. And actually, this is, I think, something that comes up when, when I do my part two training is is really digging into how you're deciding it. Because we do just learn because we've experienced it. Um, and what we need to be doing is digging into those different uh, different factors. So um, one, one way actually I do to take the pressure off, because I think it's quite a high pressure when you're joining the dual carriageway. Right? It's like, I'm going to die or not. Um, so we, um, so what I do is once we've joined the dual carriageway, right? maybe with a bit of help, um, is get them while you're in the left lane and cars are overtaking you to look at those cars and experience whether they're going faster or slower or how far away they are. Um, and that helps them build up that knowledge of what it looks like when a car's going faster, what it looks like when a car's holding back, what it looks like when a car's going slower. Um, maybe even have a play around with your accelerator. So look, if we accelerate, that car's not going faster than us anymore. Um, so yeah, let them experience it in that sort of slightly safer environment. Um, what you've got, the problem is you might get on the dual carriageway first, but just help them. Can I add to that if that's okay? Sorry, but. If you're teaching the judgment throughout that lesson uh, or that journey, if you like, uh, it will come naturally to them because they're already taking those factors into account. It's the same factors 
as emerging and moving out of the <coughs> and, you know, coming out of the roundabout and you're crossing lanes and all these different things. So if we're doing that continuously when it comes to merging onto the Joe carriageway, it be seamless. Not always. Please don't hold me to that and feel free to dip in if they, they, they drop the, the ball. But, yeah, I, I think you'll find if we drill into, like Phil said, um, the factors that you're doing, help them explore those decision-making processes, then then it will come naturally. I have sorry, one thing that I forgot to say. It's when you're digging deeper and drilling in into judgment, it comes from experience. That's how we all know we can take those gaps. But by teaching it, we can expedite that learning process because this is the issue. Most of us don't teach it, or I'm not saying us, but most instructors out there don't teach it. And therefore, the learning isn't expedited. Any other questions? Great question. Oh, yeah. So the question is uh, the yes or no game doesn't work for all students and, you know, different scenarios as well. Is that right? Did you say? Um, there's never an any one size fits all. It has been very effective with most students. That's not to say we don't have a blip afterwards. But all that is is a fun little game to, again, expedite the learning, help them calm that sort of amygdala. Yeah, and get more interaction from them and get them talking. You know how many times is it our pupils literally go silent and we're like, Come on, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. Really, that's all I say. Tell me your plan. Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. Uh, yeah, it's a fun game. Yes or no? Can I, I just have to end. I forgot I did this. Um, the uh, Another add to that game that I did was, I feel like I'm Dave Gallagher, so that uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, one thing I um, added to this was, and it probably works better with, with automatic, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it would work well, is I, I named the pedals the yes pedal and the no pedal. Um, so when they were saying yes, we were pressing the yes pedal. Um, because that because that happens a lot. They'll say yes, but they won't go. Um, so you have to tell them to tell their feet, um, and and they will sort of hit that yes pedal or no pedal. That that really can change change be a game changer because a lot of the time they see the decision, but still don't go. And, and we need to bridge that gap in their in their head. Mm, job done. So, so gap before clutch. <laughs> <laughs> um, could somebody remove that one top of the room? Yeah, he's on next. Thank you. Okay, oh, we got one more question. Last one. Yeah, yeah. We're talking normally ABC guide on the other. Oh, an ABC guide on how to deal with complex roundabouts. Is that right? Um, not in two minutes. Yeah, let's have a conversation afterwards. I know that would be super helpful for everybody else. Uh, uh, like, Ty Pum's like getting antsy. Um, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate The Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook. Talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. Oh.
are you still listening after that really long episode with loads of different content and loads of different speakers? And after the music finished, wow, I really like you. Thank you for listening. You're one of the extra special listeners.